we often get asked the question, you know, which which investors have you looked up to over the years, or you know, you know, what sort of investment process do you like out there? And and our answer is that there's a lot of great investors, but we've learned a lot more from ants and bees and biology and evolutionary fitness functions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On today's episode, we're super excited to have Brad Slingerland and Brinton Johns on the podcast. So they actually met at Janice Henderson, where they were portfolio managers and research analysts for 20 years. And then a couple years ago, they started NZS Capital, non-zero sum, and they have just a really interesting way of looking at the world and looking at technology, including complexity, investing, and how it's really important to strive for finding adaptable companies. So we talk all about that, and please enjoy this one with Brad and Brinton. And just so you know, the first person to talk is Brad. Okay, on today's episode of the Investing City Podcast, super excited to have Brad Slingerland and Brenton Johns on. So thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. So I think it would be great to start with a little bit of your guys' background and kind of just how you got to where you are today. Sure, uh, I can start and then um, Brenton, you can jump in. So um, Brenton and I worked together at um, Janice Capital, which is now known as Janice Henderson, um, for quite a while. I started there in 98 as a summer intern, basically you know, spent my whole career there, um, as did Brenton. He started uh, just a couple years after that. And then we worked together for, I think, 14 years while we were there and then have been working together again for the last year from when we started NZS Capital. I think for the majority of the time we were at Janus, we were focused on the innovation and technology sector of the economy. And we ran the Janus Global Technology Fund um, from 2011 to the end of 2018 when I um, left Janus. And then we took a little time off and, and got, got going again. But we, we've you know, basically spent our careers kind of thinking about disruption and innovation and, and how do we learn from that and how does that apply to the, the broader world and everything that's going on both before before coronavirus and, and after it now. Yeah, and I would just add, um, you know, we were analysts for a long time, so really focused on um, companies and stock by stock analysis, and that's sort of the heart of our process still. But when we did start managing the portfolio, uh, we figured out we, we had a lot to learn about, about constructing a portfolio of stocks and, and, and what that looks like. And really from that process, um, we started to write down a few of the ideas uh, that we had based on eight years of data from the portfolio and, and mistakes that we'd made. And, uh, and that's where we came up with complexity investing, which we wrote 
um, I believe we wrote it mostly in 2013 and, and sort of put it out there uh, to anyone in, in 2014. And, and that remains um, the heart and soul of NZS is, is how we think about portfolio construction, uh, which also goes down to stock analysis as well. Yeah, so I'll definitely link to that in the show notes, but I would love if you guys gave just a kind of primer on what complexity investing is and kind of summarize that white paper. Britton, do you want to take a stab at that? Um, yeah, I'll start. So uh, we think of the world as a complex adaptive system. Um, we don't just think of it that way. The world is a complex adaptive system. So, so uh, this is a fact. Um, what tends to happen in the investing world, the finance world quite a bit is it's um, viewed uh, with a relatively tight perimeter of outcomes. But the world doesn't operate that way. The world operates on a really wide perimeter of outcomes. And there's really no better illustration of that than what we're all living through right now with COVID-19. Uh, so there's a wide range of outcomes, which means predicting the future is virtually useless. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. We just like to trick ourselves into thinking it's gonna look a lot like what we just lived through today. Um, so when you, when you give up that illusion that you can predict the future, then how do you construct a portfolio? Well, you think primarily about adaptability. And in the portfolio, we really have these two portfolios in one. Uh, half of the portfolio is geared towards resilience. So we think about not losing. We concentrate that half of the portfolio into about 15 to 20 stocks. Um, and then half of the portfolio is thinking about optionality. So what's really asymmetric? Uh, and in that half of the portfolio, we distribute that over a larger number of stocks, let's call it 35 to 45. And we're really thinking about asymmetry in that half of the portfolio. And the thinking is we can, we can lose more than we win and we could still win if the positions are asymmetric enough. So we have no idea which one of those holdings might, um, might go up a lot, but we, we have a pretty good idea of how to distribute the holdings such that a few of them are going to be very asymmetric. And so in, in both of those halves of the portfolio, we're thinking about the range of predictions we're making about the future. And in the, the top half of the portfolio, the resilience portion, we have a, a very wide range of futures um, that, that could, uh, the, this stock could express itself in. So the prediction is very broad. Uh, we may think of a stock uh, or a prediction like in the future, there are gonna be more electronics pushing into the world. And so how do we express that from a stock basis? Um, a holding could be like Amphenol or Microchip that we might express that with, where the, the prediction is very broad. In the tail of the portfolio, the predictions are, are very narrow um, and, and you know, may or may not come true, uh, but we're gonna distribute that so it's a small position. But if, the, if that prediction of the future does come true, it's gonna be extremely asymmetric. So, so the heart of the, the philosophy is this resilience and optionality. Um, I'll stop there and, and let Brad take it from there. Yeah, maybe I'll just add a, a couple things. I think, you know, we, we've formalized this philosophy, complexity investing. Um, we, we wrote and published the white paper in 2014. So it's on the nzscapital.com website for anybody who wants to, to grab it under our um, white paper section. And we had a lot of data when we did that. And so it really informed this portfolio construction process around resilience and optionality 
and then squeezing the middle out of the portfolio. So we have this sort of unique portfolio construction process where we have very um, a lot of really small positions, like Britton mentioned, in optionality, and then a handful of really large positions. But we have no middle-sized positions. There's literally, when you look at the distribution of the portfolio, a gap in the middle. And <clears throat> the reason is because we we found through a lot of data we analyzed that uh, that's where mistakes are made. Businesses either need to be resilient or optional, or a combination of the two, or they're stuck in the middle. They don't they don't belong in a portfolio um, in the context of the portfolio. And then two other points I would make is that the real lesson, you know, for us from complex adaptive systems is, is the middle word, adaptive and adaptability. And so we often get asked the question, you know, which, which investors have you looked up to over the years or, you know, you know, what sort of investment process do you like out there? And, and our answer is that there's a lot of great investors, but we've learned a lot more from ants and bees and biology and evolutionary fitness functions than we have from investors because that's, you know, ants and bees and the biological world is all about adaptability. And for companies to survive, uh, you know, if, if anything, what we're learning right now is the most adaptable organizations are the ones that are going to survive and thrive um, because the pace of disruption is getting faster every year. Now we're going through an unusually high pace of disruption right now with COVID-19, but Next year, there'll be something else. And the year after that, there'll be something else. And these disruptions come faster and faster in the information age. And that's where this idea of adaptability and complex adaptive systems really gives us insight into what companies are we looking for? How do we build a portfolio around that? Yeah, I mean, it's a super interesting framework. So how do you guys think about measuring adaptability? Like, how do you actually go out and find companies that are adaptable? <laughs> it's really hard. Um, I'll start at it with that, Brent, and then you can jump in. There's a f there's a few things that we come across that are, um, I would say it's different in every case, but you know, certainly companies need to be long-term focused. If they're focused on, if they're managing the business for the quarter, they're just simply not going to adapt to disruption that comes. They're going to just be constantly reacting instead of adapting. Um, you know, organization structure is really important. I think, you can get some insights into this, you know, without needing access to a CEO. You can find a lot of this information through the way a company talks about itself and its annual reports and, you know, when they do interviews publicly. But a decentralized organization is much more adaptable. So you want decentralized decision making. You know, anything that can be decentralized should be, any employee that can be empowered should be. And a lot of organizations are sort of very hierarchical, top down and very structured and they tend to be rigid and when disruption comes, they just don't, they don't see it happening. Um, and then innovation is another important one. How focused is the company on innovation? And, and um, another one is how focused are they on the customer needs? Are they competitor focused or customer focused? The more customer focused you are, the more likely to, you are to see that your customer needs are changing. When you see your customer needs are changing, you can adapt your business to that. So that's sort of a long list. We go, we go into um, quite a few of them in, in the paper. Um, but it's, it's a pretty long list and it's a little bit of just learning and reading and, and sort of finding those hallmarks of adaptability and then watching them over time and, and trying to get a sense of what you're looking for. Yeah, the, the process is subjective. So, you know, as humans, we love these numbers. Uh, we, love, we love things we can measure and put a number on it. It makes us feel good. Um, but unfortunately with complex systems, 
Um, there are a lot of things that are subjective that just aren't open to being measured. Uh, so with our process, it's always exactly the same. And Brad alluded to a lot of the pieces of it. This is chapter three in the paper, if, if anyone wants to read it. Um, but it, we go through these three buckets in a funnel. It's quality, growth, and context. And with quality, we're talking about sort of the, the management team. Um, is, it, is it a management team that we would hand our wallet to? Um, are they adaptable? Uh, do they have a culture of innovation? Is it decentralized? With growth, we're really looking at the nature of growth. We like to see a negative feedback loop or a governor on the growth. We don't like to see hyper growth um, because a governor on the growth extends the duration of growth and that's what we're really going for. In the top half of our portfolio, our turnover is only around 10%. Um, so we own names for a very long time. Uh, and then, of course, with growth, we're also looking at NZS. And NZS, which is what we named the firm after, stands for non-zero sum, meaning can all the constituents of the system win? Uh, we like to think of NZS as more than the stakeholder model. Really, we're talking about the environment. We're talking about consumers. We're talking about question, company creating more values taking. And that's central to understanding NZS. Um, and then finally, context. So context would be uh, valuation fits in there for us. Um, you know, what, what is the valuation demanding that we believe? And a company that's trading at 20 times revenues is demanding quite a few predictions about the future. Um, whereas a company trading, you know, at 10 times earnings is demanding uh, fewer predictions, but maybe fragile in other ways. Um, and then uh, with context, we're looking at headwinds, tailwinds. What's the world telling us about, about this company? Is it a legacy industrial um, sort of stuck company that is not thinking about the you know, information age, uh, but that's just really fragile to change? Or do they have um, time on their side, which are, are the companies that we're looking for? And then we think, after we wrap all this up, we think about the range of predictions. Are these very broad, safe predictions, or are they very narrow, dangerous predictions? And that, of course, informs our position size. Gotcha. So if you guys don't mind, I think it'd be awesome to go through an example of maybe one you know, resilient company and one company that has more characteristics of optionality. Do you want to start with that, Brenton? Um, sure, I'll go. Uh, since I alluded to it earlier, I'll just go through Amphenol, um, which we think of as a very resilient company. Amphenol sells connectors, uh, which is sort of a, like, what's that? Um, <laughs> I think of them as, uh, as dark matter. Uh, you know, you, when you know that they're there, you see them everywhere. But if you didn't know they were there, you would never suspect them. Um, they, they sell the guts of, of all electronics devices. Um, and they tend to be very specialized parts that they sell. So they may be the only person selling that connector or one of two people selling that connector. It's a very good business. It's very broadly distributed across the world. As electronics push deeper into the world, they win. So the prediction is very broad. Um, sometimes Brad and I think about, well, how many copies of the multiverse is this true in? You know, it's like, well, um, you know, maybe only one copy of the multiverse has, has a, a the monetary system that's denoted in Bitcoin. Um, but lots of copies of the multiverse use connectors. Um, and so, so this is a very broad, safe prediction. 
And then we look at the management team. We take it through that quality growth context funnel that we take everything through. We look at the valuation and then we size that position accordingly. In this case, um, you know, it'd be near the top of the portfolio at a four to 5% position size. Uh, and and we, we've owned that stock actually for um, since 2007. So uh, we've owned it for quite some time and we're still excited to own it. That would be the hallmark of a resilient stock. Yeah, and Amphenol is another good example because they're, they're hyper-decentralized. So they, they're so decentralized that have some of their divisions actually compete with themselves because they're sort of really trying to create their own evolutionary fitness functions. Another interesting example of resilience in the portfolio is Ball Corporation. So Ball Corporation is the world's biggest maker of aluminum cans, which doesn't sound like the most interesting or adaptable business in the world, but, but it's actually um, really interesting on, on a number of fronts. So they make around 100 billion cans a year in a market that's around 300 billion cans. And that's about 80% of their business. And the other 20% is, is interestingly enough in aerospace where just through a series of historical coincidences, they're uh, a really important supplier of really technical things for things like um, you know, satellites and the Hubble, Hubble Space Telescope and, and other really cool things that are up in space. Um, so in the can market, you know, it's interesting because balls are actually company that's been around for over a hundred years. They think very long term. They have a, a rolling ten-year plan that they operate the company on. Uh, they're very focused on getting into and getting out of businesses that you know over time are adding more value. And so, what's really interesting in the can market is it doesn't grow very much, although it's growing faster right now because people are stuck at home instead of uh, out. Um, drinking soda and, and beer and things at restaurants. They're drinking them in cans from home. But over time, you have this huge um, single-use plastic bottle market, which is bigger than the can market, um, several hundred billion units a year, that really needs to go away. It's just it's causing too much damage. And so the natural home for that over time is aluminum. And when you're, when you're talking about single-use, obviously there's there's reusable products, but really a lot of it, makes sense to be single use, um, you know, over 70% of all aluminum ever extracted and processed in the history of civilization is still in use today. So it's the sort of the world's most infinitely recyclable material. And so over time, the context is getting better and better for a company like Ball, and it's actually really hard to make, you know, a hundred billion of anything. Um, um, you, you end up with a lot of specialized know-how to be able to do that. For, for low cost and efficiently. And then on the, on the innovation front, they developed a new aluminum cup, um, which was debuted at the Super Bowl um, with Budweiser earlier this year to replace that kind of traditional plastic solo cup or plastic cup you get at events or, or plastic cups you might use around the house for various things. And that's also hard to extract aluminum at super high volumes and into um, you know cup shape. So it's a really interesting, um, you know, example of these, these companies aren't just in the tech sector. They're, they're all over the place, but increasingly they're innovative and they're providing, you know, higher NZS, non-zero sum solutions to the world like we get with, with aluminum cups. Britton, did you want to give an optionality? Example? Yeah, um, maybe a couple, uh, you know, Brad, if you want to talk about Zillow Redfin, but um, maybe we start with Cree. Uh, we own Cree as an optionality position. So quality is very high here. It's run by just an exceptional manager named Greg Lowe. We knew Greg first at TI, and then he was the CEO of Freescale. Freescale later sold NXP, and, uh, and then Greg landed at, at Cree. Um, 
the really exciting part of Cree's business is uh, semiconductors they make, which are going to go into electronic vehicles. Um, so this is a technology called silicon carbide and gallium nitride. They are developing a fab to do this. Uh, the narrow prediction is that we don't know if Cree is going to be the ultimate winner or others will be the ultimate winner. Um, we do know that it's going to be very capital intensive, so they're going to have to create a, a factory to do this. And really, the, the big orders aren't going to start for several more years. Um, and with COVID-19, who knows, uh, you know, it could be a, a delayed a year or so. The broad prediction here is that electronic vehicles are going to take share of the car market. We feel pretty safe about that. Um, but sort of when and, and who are narrow predictions. And so that would limit um, our sizing of pre to below 1% that really are excited about the asymmetry of that position. I mean, I think another interesting way to think about optionality is we often don't just simply don't know if we're going to be right. So we're starting out with a really wide range of outcomes that we hope gets more narrow over time. And so I think there's a couple interesting industries right now that I'll give a couple examples. So one would be in real, real estate with, with Zillow and Redfin, and the other would be in small business tech with, with Shopify and Square. So I'll come back to Shopify and Square in a minute. But in the real estate market, it's going through massive disruption right now because you know a lot of people can't even list their homes for sale or they're, they're sort of uncertain on their employment, so they don't want to, um, to move or look at buying a new house right now. But if we sort of step out of that for a moment and just look at what's happening to the real estate market, and it's, it's going from a market that didn't have good liquidity to a market that's increasingly got good liquidity with the iBuyer phenomenon. Zillow and Redfin are, are in different businesses. Zillow is an information-based platform. They're not a real estate broker. Redfin is a real estate brokerage that also has an information platform next to it. Both are sort of wading into and, and getting into the iBuyer market where they're sort of becoming a market maker, like we have a market maker, or we used to have market makers in the stock exchange before it was all done by computers. But um, there's this role for a market maker to play to provide liquidity in a previously illiquid market, such as housing. So as that happens, the housing market in the US and then other companies are doing it around the world it's going to transform. We don't really know how. We don't know the pace at which it's going to transform. We don't know who's going to be the winner. Could be a private company like Open Door. Could be, you know, we don't even know. Um, so it's a wide range of outcomes. But it looks like it's going in the direction that it's a higher non-zero outcome for buyers and sellers of houses. Um, it's really disruptive. Both companies, Zillow and Redfin, are really adaptable. So we own them both as optionality positions. If the range of outcomes were to start to narrow, um, so looking more like one or both, or, or you know, it's a huge, huge market um, with a lot of ancillary and adjacencies that both companies can go into. If it appears the range of outcomes is narrowing to the point where there's going to be a winner or a couple of winners, then we would increase those position sizes, possibly even make them resilient positions if the range of outcomes got narrow enough, if it became clear that we knew a little bit more about how the future might unfold. But in the meantime, we think it's a broad prediction, a fairly safe prediction to say real estate's going through a digital transformation. When, you know, when we see industries go through digital transformation, we tend to see a smaller number of winners take a greater number of market share sort of over and over, you know, sort of Netflix and media and Amazon and e-commerce and, and on and on. And so we'll just sort of watch that, but we believe the asymmetry is high enough that, that there's, there's good optionality there. On Square and Shopify, it's interesting because the sort of broad prediction is that there's going to be a new operating system for small businesses. 
that prediction is probably accelerating in terms of its disruption with, with COVID-19. We don't really know if Shopify or Square are going to be the new operating system for small business, but we think they have a really interesting opportunity to provide this infrastructure layer to start and run a business on. So to sort of beyond just like e-commerce for Shopify or, or payments for Square, it's, um, you know, it's really a broader operating system for small business. Is that going to be one of those companies? Is it going to be another company? Is it not going to happen at all? We don't really know. But we think they're really great businesses that meet a lot of our criteria around quality, growth, and context. So we, we would own them as, as optionality positions. Yeah, it's super helpful to go into all those examples. Really appreciate that. Um, so at the top of this, you guys were talking about how you used to be analysts and now moving into kind of a portfolio management role, you kind of realize some of the mistakes that you've made. So are there any reoccurring mistakes that you kind of realized and how have you tried to um, kind of make sure those mistakes don't crop up time and time again? Um, yeah, the biggest mistake we make is overconfidence. Um, you know, in the investing world, you tend to hear it called conviction. We think conviction most of the time is just overconfidence. <laughs> and when we hear conviction from each other, we call bullshit on that. Um, we're like, hey, look, uh, let's be clear about what we do we don't know. So how do you stamp out overconfidence? It's impossible to do in yourself because you hardly ever see it. Um, really, it's very difficult to see in yourself and it's very easy to see in other people. So we think investing is a team sport. We rely heavily on the team. Uh, we obsess over team culture. Um, what we're trying to create is an organization that has high psychological safety and also can be incredibly direct with one another, never attacking the person, but always the idea and then attacking the bias in that idea over time. So <laughs> that's what we stamp out. And our biggest mistakes have been ones of overconfidence. And that's why we enable the team and we really charge the team with calling out bias. Yeah, totally. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so another question is kind of, are there any companies that have gone from the optionality pool and then moved up the chain towards resilience? Or how do you think about kind of monitoring the optionality positions over time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably the biggest decision we make is maybe two or three times a year is putting capital behind a position and allowing it to move up to resilience. Because otherwise what we're doing is as it goes up, we're actually constantly trimming the stock to keep it in the optionality position. And I think people are, you know, sometimes appropriately critical of that strategy. And, and sometimes it's just a misunderstanding of why we do that. But, you know, if, if it just because a stock is going up, does it mean it's becoming more resilient? It just means people are buying the stock. So, you know, so let's take um, an example, Tesla, for, for example. So it's an optionality position in the portfolio. It was, um, it was going up. Um, it was going up a lot earlier this year. And from our perspective, the range of outcomes is getting better for Tesla. I think it's every year that goes by, they're extending their lead on the incumbent um, car manufacturers, but it's still a really wide range of outcomes. There's like a whole, like a lot of things could happen where Tesla might, you know, might not even be around. We think that's increasingly less likely, um, particularly given their lead and the way the company is operating today. But it's a really complex situation. You know, could um, Germany decide it's of national importance to be a leader in 
you know, to remain a leader in cars and could they provide tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies to German car manufacturers? I mean, there's just too many, too many unknowns. Um, could, could there be a battery breakthrough that's not based on lithium that someone else comes up with and that ends up being the deciding factor? Could there be an autonomous breakthrough that happens at Waymo or someone else that, that, that ends up giving an advantage to, to a different um, company in the ecosystem? So although the range of outcomes are getting narrow, they're still really wide. So as Tesla's you know, doubling or tripling, we're keeping it small in the portfolio and, and optionality for us is capped at one and a half percent. So yeah, we probably leave some money on the table doing that. But what, what's important is that the position size has the appropriate amount of risk for the range of outcomes. So just because Tesla's going up doesn't mean it's a safer stock. In a lot of ways, it means it's not as safe. So we're unwilling to run what we believe an op, to be an optionality range of outcomes in a resilient position size, because that's, that's how you lose. That's how you, you, you sort of die and you don't fight another day is because you're gambling or putting these high asymmetry positions in the top of the portfolio. But there's a scenario where Tesla, where the range of outcomes is going to narrow more and more and more. And we're gonna say, okay, um, just even if Germany wants to put all this money behind it or China's doing something or you know, there's this breakthrough here, they've built the powerful enough platform and network effect and, and data um, capability that we should, we should let this graduate. And then we would put capital behind it and move it up if that happens. Also, just to, to go back to an example from earlier with Zillow, Zillow used to be a resilient position for us. So from the time of the IPO, we owned it in our prior fund as an optionality position. But when they basically won the advertising market, the online advertising market for real estate agents, particularly in, in more expensive zip codes in the U.S., it actually turned into a resilient business with the ability to add optionality around it, which is what we call RootMo, resilience with out-of-the-money optionalities. They got into mortgages and apartments and other things. But, but then that, they sort of reached somewhat of a plateau in that business and then decided to pivot to iBuying. So the range of outcomes had started to narrow to the point where it became resilient. We put it into the resilience bucket and then it became optional again. And we cut, you know, cut the position and moved it back into optionality because it's now gone from a sort of a predictable range of outcomes to a very unpredictable range of outcomes with iBuying. But at the same time, the asymmetry has gone way up. And so it actually qualifies as an optionality position. If we were to see, like I said earlier, the range of outcomes narrow uh, and the predictions become safer and broader for Zillow, then we would move it again back into the resilience. Um, another, another example of a stock that was optional for us um, previously, uh, but is now resilient would be Cadence. Um, Cadence is a software provider to the semiconductor market. So anytime you design a chip, you use typically one of two programs. It's either Cadence or Synopsys. So if you're a, a chip designer, you go in to work every day and, and you live on, on one of these two programs. It's sort of your Excel um, to financial analysts. Uh, we owned that as an optionality position for a long time because the industry, which is called the EDA industry, um, electronic design automation, it was not the greatest industry. They had several players, their, their software was, was um, pirated. The semiconductor industry, as we all know, has been consolidating. So the number of customers were getting fewer. Um, however, uh, what we've seen happen is we've seen two emerge that have been able to keep pace with Moore's Law, with what's going on in semiconductors, um, which makes them harder, harder to manufacture. And it's really only cadence and synopsis. 
Lib Bhutan, which is the, um, the CEO of Cadence, has proven to be an exceptional leader. Um, so the quality is very high. And then we saw a proliferation of new customers. So we saw Google start designing chips and Microsoft start designing chips. And of course, Apple is designing chips and um, others, uh, right? Go down the line. And, and so the industry really got a lot better. They started to go into adjacencies like simulation and verification that have become broader parts of their businesses. And all those factors combined to um, lead us to put additional capital behind the position and make it into a resilient position, uh, knowing that really that in some ways the fate of the, of the world in terms of um, continuing progress in chip designs depends on these two companies. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, that idea of going from optionality to resilience is, yeah, just really fascinating. So I would think it would be helpful to kind of double click on Zillow and talk about how it's kind of moved from resilience back to optionality. So what would, in iBuying, what would be sort of the signposts that you would need to see in order to kind of move it back to resilience? Yeah, so I think this comes back to this idea of, um, you know, what happens when an industrial age business becomes an information age business. And so home buying has been an industry that's been around for a long time. Um, sort of grew into its current business model in the 1900s, this idea of real estate agents and commissions of five or 6%. Um, certainly that's what we see here in the US. Um, other markets have some different nuances to it, but it's basically a market that required um, a middleman, someone to sit in between. It's a complex transaction. There's a lot of legal consequences. There's, um, you know, there's title work that's involved. There's, there's sort of a lot of reasons, you know, you don't want strangers coming into your house necessarily. So there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense to have someone in that transaction, an agent. Um, but there's some, some of those traction, transactions where you may not need an agent or it may not be as complex of a transaction. And so that's where I think iBuying has started to some extent where, um, it, you know, it, it, it's sort of like the perverse thing about it is we've for years said, oh, the 5% the commission is too high and it's going to get eroded down to 1% or 2% or 3%. And Redfin's been a real leader in that, as has some other startup brokerages. But the weird thing is that maybe in some cases, the 5% is too low. That if you actually need to move because your job has changed or you're having a, another kid and you've got to get a bigger house and you, you know, the, the friction for that transaction has become very high, you might be willing to sell at a 7 or 8% discount to fair value to an iBuyer. And so that's, you know, this, this sort of stratification of going, well, we had this sort of market where everything was out of, you know, average 5.6% commission. And maybe now some things are going to be at 1%, but some things are going to be at 10%. And it's this role of a market maker to step in and do that. And what we see, and then the, the key thing to that, of course, is information and data. What's the property worth? And so Zillow, and I think, you know, Redfin to a lesser extent, is you know excellent at understanding the data around what a property is worth today, what it could be worth in a month, what could it be worth a year from now, and they're not always going to get those right, but on average they're increasingly accurate on that. It gives them an advantage in terms of what they pay, um, and, and so we see this over and over again when a business shifts from sort of a, a, a non-database um, industry to a database industry. It it tends to be winner takes most, or a couple of winners take most or in some cases winner takes all and you just start seeing this snowball effect or you know network effect um, platform and scale 
And so if we saw, what we would be looking for is city by cities to take Phoenix, Arizona, which is one of the early iBuyer markets. If Zillow or Redfin or Opendoor, somebody was getting to the point where they were like, you know, 10% of a zip code, you know, 20% of a zip code, or, you know, 7% of the whole, you know, the whole greater Phoenix region, you would start to say like, and then if we saw that in a few other cities, we would go like, okay, there's now a new, um, we, we don't like the word, we don't like to use the term competitive advantage moat or barriers to entry or anything like that, but there's a new durability um, that that's, there's a sort of a new platform network effect that's forming. It's, it's looking like information wins. And when information wins, there's usually a winner or two winners. And if we start to happen, the range of outcomes would then be narrowing for one of those companies, um, such as Zillow, and we would put more capital behind it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for going through that. So just one more thing on kind of resilience and optionality. You guys don't even necessarily have to own these companies, but what would you say is like one of the most resilient companies out there and one of the most optional companies out there? <laughs> uh, I think I've thought about that question before. I mean, I think you have to think of, of Microsoft as an incredibly resilient company. And, and this was a company that really almost died, you know, sort of a decade ago. Um, maybe that's too severe, but, but clearly their, their model was not working for them. Uh, but then when Satya Nadella came in and, and really demonstrated just exceptional leadership and understanding of the world and, and put the emphasis on Azure, I think you have to believe it's one of the most resilient companies in the world. Very early days, um, you know, the data center has become a utility and, and Microsoft is, is smack in the middle of that. So that, that's incredibly resilient. You know, in the, the most optional, um, the answer is we don't know <laughs> because, you know, these depend on very specific outcomes and, and we don't know which outcome is going to happen. So with optionality, what time has taught us to do is, first of all, not believe our own version of the future because we don't know, just like anyone doesn't know, we have no special power of knowing. But what we're pretty good at is distributing that um, asymmetry over a, a, a basket. And in that basket, um, we don't know which ones are gonna work, no idea. We're always surprised, as surprised as anyone. But we do tend to pick um, in that distribution, call it five or 10, which are incredibly powerful. And of course, what we're always looking for are a few in the basket to graduate into resilience. That doesn't happen very often, but it is, like Brad said earlier, it is the most important decision we make every year. We may make that twice in a year. We debate it all the time. Uh, but it's incredibly powerful as we bring those into the head of the portfolio. It's also like important to, to we make this distinction between optionality and gambling because it, sometimes it's like the most optional, the highest asymmetry stuff. They're just total wild ass guesses. I mean, it's like you just think the world's going to play out in some specific way and, and it's really just going to Vegas and gambling. And so we've seen that over and over again with businesses like it's, you know, and the faster they grow, the more likely it is to be a gamble. And, and just, you know, we love this idea of slow, durable growth because the, it's, it's the slower you grow, the, the more resilient you are, the more resilient you become over time. Um, but if I were to, it's an interesting question, what's the most optionality, um, the most optional potential out there? I, I think where I would take a stab at that is what are the biggest 
sectors in the economy that haven't gone through a digital transformation yet. And it's still most of the economy. And most of the, and all of the economy is going to go through a digital transformation. If you're not a tech company today, you will need to be a tech company in some form in the future. That's, that's not really a novel idea, but it's definitely accelerating right now. And so I, I would come back to, okay, what are the, you know, we've got this, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how big the economy is now with, with COVID-19, but let's say it's still like $70 trillion or whatever the number is. Um, what are like the $10 trillion chunks of the economy that haven't, haven't really, that just still feel like they're living in the industrial age or living in the 1900s. And, um, you know, this concept of every transaction going digital is interesting in that context. So e-commerce is globally is still only around like 15% of, of consumer transactions and e-commerce for B2B transactions for business to business transactions is really small. It's still pretty much like send an invoice, write a check. Like there's just not a lot of digital going on. So you could actually still see like, $50 trillion of the global economy become a digital transaction. So then you want to think about like, okay, well, who could benefit from that? You know, I think we see this in the energy economy. It's like, there's a lot of chaos going on right now with, with oil prices and that'll, that'll likely settle out. But the long arc is we're going to um, renewable, sustainable energy. And so here's another sort of five or $10 trillion of the economy. I'm just making that number up, but for purposes of illustration that are, have yet to become truly a digital tech enabled industry. And so I would look for those, those big trillion dollar buckets of the global economy where you're not just guessing, you know, where you're not just gambling. You're actually saying like, okay, it's a wide range of outcomes, but this company exhibits the characteristics of a digital information age winner, meaning network effects platform, data, um, you know, long duration growth, high NZS, you know, very high non-zero sum equation. We think the companies that are going to take over these big chunks of the economy and make them digital are the ones that are providing more value to everyone else are taking themselves. And that's that, that, that heart of the concept of non-zero sum or, or NCS. Yeah. So it might've been two questions ago. You mentioned that you guys don't like kind of the taxonomy of moat or competitive advantage. Is that because of adaptability or is there something else to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a few pieces to it. We've it's chapter four in our paper where we we sort of take issue with Porter's five forces, which I think is one of the more offensive things that people think that we do. Um, so when we think about this traditional idea of competitive advantage or moats, we think it's just really like a 1900s industrial age concept. So there are elements of of Porter's five forces, particularly around brand value and intellectual property, that we still agree are important parts of building a durable. Uh, an adaptable business. And if you look at actually some of Porter's recent writings in the last couple of years, he's gone back and criticized a lot of his own concept of, of moats. And I think most people who still rely on this sort of moat investing framework have missed the fact that the Porter himself is, is trying to evolve this in the information age a little bit. I don't, we don't think he's gone far enough, but we think these, these ideas of moats were basically pockets of information hoarding. So you know, you basically, I know something you don't know, and therefore I can charge and get value out of it. So there's, there's a good example coming back to real estate again is, you know, agents, particularly in a lot of complex zip codes, can know the houses and the streets and the blocks and, and the cities better than anyone else. They can know what houses are coming up for sale. Um, there's just sort of this information that they had, and they were able to really 
um, you know, they knew the right buyers who were in the market. They knew the, you know, the sellers who might sell. They, they just had this information. And then all of a sudden that, that information goes free. You know, everybody can just see what, what's my house worth? Um, what should it be worth in what environment? You know, who's, who's interested in this kind of house? And then you just, that, that moat built around that traditional information hoarding of the agent isn't there anymore. But we see this in almost every industry, like whole supply chains and, and you know, return on invested capital models and all built around, like, I know something that you don't know. And in the information age, everybody knows everything. And so these concepts of power over suppliers, power over your customers, it's like the exact wrong concept. So when we see pricing power, we're, we're actually like, we don't like that. Like, it's sometimes pricing power is okay, but most of the times it, it, it means you're like, you're hoarding information or you're exerting power over your customer. And that's just creates a vulnerability or fragility for someone to come in and blow up your business model. But it does go right back to adaptability, Ryan, as you said. Um, when you do, you know, if you think about the castle and moat illustration, when you dig these moats around your business, what you're doing is hardening the edge of the network. So we know from network theory, when you harden the edge of the network, you lose adaptability. Um, and when you lose adaptability in the information age, you're done. Uh, it doesn't work anymore. You may exploit price for a specific period of time, but later on, that margin is going to end up being your vulnerability. Um, just like Bezos says, your margin is my opportunity. So instead of digging a moat, our approach lets the drawbridge down. We say, okay, um, there's, we're letting the drawbridge down, down. We're letting the drawbridge down and everything we know, you know. And our goal is to create so much value in the system that we're going to take some and you're going to be happy that we're taking it because we're creating way more value than we're taking that is the sustainable, adaptable business of the 21st century, um, which turns the old uh, sort of porters, and I'm not saying porters said this, but sort of the porter view of, I'm going to build a moat around my business and then I'm going to screw you on price, so taste it. You know, it takes that and turns it on its head and says, no, 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 that will not pass anymore because information is transparent. Yeah, I mean, I find that super interesting, letting the drawbridge down and just providing the most value. So... What do you, I mean, kind of going back to like another, what do you think the most resilient, but what do you think the company out there that provides the most value to customers is? But I mean, Microsoft's an interesting example that Brenton mentioned earlier, because their whole business is like, and this is such a change from where it was during the Balmer years, but it gets it back to, I think, um, where it was a long time ago, which is when you are providing these you know, software is one of the best spots to look for this because basically the incremental cost of software is zero. Once you've written the code, it, you just you put it on AWS or, or Google or Azure and run it. Um, but it, it basically, you can just build entire ecosystems and businesses off of it. So I can think about the Apple App Store, um, the Google Play Store, where you're just going and just creating like a trillion dollar economy that didn't exist before and so the you know and Satya and Nadella at Microsoft has said this many times since he took over which is our our sole focus is how much value are we creating for our customers and so when you think about you know uh, you know paying $150 a year or $100 a year for uh, Office 365 seed across all your employees and how much value is that actually generating could you run your business without it is there is there a cheaper tool where you could get more benefit out of it probably not. Um, and you sort of go down the list of their their properties and, and products that they have. But I do think, you, you know, sort of become a cliche to say every company is a software company. 
or software is eating the world, but software has so much ability to provide more value than, than it's um, you know, probably so much more value for its customers than it's taking for itself. Totally. Um, so I've been reading your guys's weekly newsletter, the stuff I thought about last week and what, I mean, there's so much information there. So just curious about how you guys kind of curate information and some of the sources that you get it from. Well, I think everybody on the team does it a little bit differently. I'm um, sort of just my personal style is to just like live in the fire hydrant of information and try and pull out the, the signal whenever we can. We're always looking for what's trying to separate like what's an actual event or signal from what's just somebody's opinion or, or a guess about the future. And, and um, you know, most of the time it's really, we think we found an event or something that's real and it actually isn't. It's just turned out to be a guess or an opinion. Um, but that's basically the um, stuff I thought about last week or, or sit all week. Um, the newsletter is kind of my process. That's just, laid bare and open sourced. And that kind of comes back to this concept of NZS for non-zero sum, which is, you know, we don't think there's any value in us hoarding all of our insights. We think that if we put our insights out there and we write everything down and publish it all that, we're going to meet interesting people. And, and then ultimately we're going to learn more and hopefully make people better investors and educate people, but also become better investors ourselves. And so the newsletter is basically that's, my process. Other folks on the team, you know, different ways of sort of wading through all the, the information. And um, we try and keep that diversity of, of style and, and opinion um, in terms of how we deal with funding, finding ideas um, and finding new areas to, to research. I think Brad is really modest here. I mean, Brad's sort of an information super processor. It's like nothing I've really ever seen um, or would believe if I hadn't seen it for so long, decades. Um, and then we have a secret weapon, which is his wife, Anna, is the editor of Sit All Week, and she's exceptional at, at editing and really making the ideas very clear and readable for other people. So um, Sit All Week would not be near as good without her. Yeah, it would, it would be it would be completely unreadable without her. In fact, the uh, I think she actually takes longer to edit it than I do to write it um, every, every week. But um, no, it's, it's a really good collaborative effort. Um, the other folks on the team contribute some of the, the ideas to it as well. And yeah, we're just, we're just always trying to think about how can, how can we add more value, um, you know, both to our clients um, as well as everyone else in the world. And that's, um, you know, you know, as I'm sure that you, as you, have used, um, as you have learned as well, Ryan, with Investing City is, you know, you get a lot of value out of sharing and everybody, everybody ends up better off. And that's the definition of this sort of game theory interaction of non-zero sum, where you create this positive transaction where um, both sides or all sides of the transaction win and are better off than had they not had any kind of transaction to begin with. Yeah, it's super interesting. So what do you think are some of the things that prevent people or companies from kind of sharing this value? You alluded to it where it's like information hoarding. Do you think that is... Like one model or are there other reasons? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of fear around just, you know, we've just been living in the industrial age where it just was like appropriate to, if you came across, you know, if you found something to keep it to yourself. And I think there's still areas of the world where that makes sense, you know, certainly in, in terms of developing like 
super advanced intellectual property or things like that, where if you do stumble upon something that even if you think it could create a ton of value for people, you do want to keep it, um, keep it close or, or sort of um, special sauce in how you manufacture something. Or So I think there's still areas where that's totally valid, but by and large, if it's information based, um, you, you're not going to be able to keep it anyway. So you might as well just put it out there and get, get the benefit from it. And plus there's just a core truth, which is you cannot out give what you get back in the system. <laughs> Meaning, um, you know, we give everything we write, we give away almost immediately. Uh, and our experiences always get back way more than we give out. Now it's nonlinear. It may come in small nuggets where we really learn a lot. So 95% of what we sift through, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, we know that or whatever. Um, but then like 5%, we're like, oh my gosh, that is completely um, nonlinear and revolutionary to the process. We add that into the process and it's, it's not like 10% better. It's like, you know, 90% better. And we never know where that's going to come from or when it's going to come or how it's going to come, any of that. But we do know that as we continue to engage in the conversation and give as much as we absolutely can, uh, that's the best way to maximize our own NCS. You know, it's, this, is, this is not altruistic. <laughs> I mean, we do believe in education and that's a core value for us, but we also get a lot out of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a really interesting concept. Um, so you guys started NCS in the last couple of years, just how has that process been and how's that going so far? It's good. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. It's interesting going from working at any large firm to working at any small firm. It's just a shift in culture because you can really focus on, um, you can sort of get rid of a lot of the noise. It just, it's not necessarily all bad noise, but there's just a lot of noise in, in being part of a larger organization and when you're part of a smaller organization you can just say okay well what matters and here's the things we're going to focus on and how we're going to focus on them and and um you end up with a lot more time it's like i know starting a business is hard and um, we've got great great partners um that we chose in, in doing that so um, they've taken a lot of that burden off of us but uh you also end up with more time <laughs> which is sort of strange um to have conversations with people and to think deeply and to to take a breath because you're not part of a big organization where you're sort of being pulled in a lot of a lot of different directions. So it's been really good so far. Yeah, it's um it's very focusing. Uh, we're amazed at how much we get done in a short period of time. And then what it really the the big thing for Brad and I is like I said before, we obsess over culture. We obsess over this idea of having a team that has psychological safety, and it allows a you know, more control of that. And we know that psychological safety is extremely nonlinear. If you don't have it, um, it's not, you know, it's not like you're getting 10% less. It's like you're not getting anything. Uh, and so, uh, so it allows us to have more control of that, which has been, you know, just massively valuable to the process. Yeah. So you mentioned an obsession over the culture and psychological safety. So like, what are some structural things on the team that you do to kind of you know, heighten that sense or make sure that it's really good? Well, there's nothing punitive. Um, so, you know, it's not like anyone gets in trouble for a bad investing idea because, you know, Brad and I, so everybody at the, at the firm that is involved with the portfolio has the same title. We're all investors. Um, Brad and I have no like special, you know, power because, <laughs> because we happen to um, be the first two at the firm. Uh, 
so there's nothing punitive. We all have bad ideas. Brad and I are still analysts. We have, you know, more than our fair share of bad ideas. We, we do it all. This is just part of the process. Um, we don't know the future and therefore we're gonna have bad ideas. Uh, and so, so that would be the first thing is there's no finger pointing. And in the same way, um, when the team succeeds, we all succeed. And so there's no like special backslap for, you know, the guy who, or the girl who got it right. Um, hopefully we all aided in getting that right. Just like we all aided in getting it wrong when we get it inevitably wrong. Um, so, so these are, are two sort of, uh, big ideas that may be different than a classic investment team approach where there's hierarchy, there is, um, you know, typically a bonus incentive on getting it right and, and something punitive and getting it wrong. Usually you get fired if you do that enough times in a row. Um, so, uh, so we're really tweaking this culture in real time. And, and again, it all comes down to the ideas. We will attack an idea vigorously. It sounds like, you know, we may have them, but everybody knows we don't. Um, we'll sing Kumbaya, you know, we'll all hold hands and go drinking afterwards. Uh, but, but that's not the point. The point is to attack the idea. Um, the point is really to get that idea where it should be in the portfolio or out of the portfolio, where it should be in terms of the range of predictions you're actually making, where it should be in terms of the bias you have or might, might not have, and be, you know, that being called out. So, so these are some central things that we think about. Yeah, it really comes down to arguing and constructive debate. I mean, if we have 50 stocks in the portfolio today, you know, we're making a mistake on 20 of them. I don't know if the numbers, but I know, I know we're making a mistake on a lot of, on a lot of the positions. And if you don't argue, um, you can't get to that truth. And so the whole point of our resilience and optionality portfolio construction is to inoculate us from those mistakes. If we are, whichever those mistakes we've made, we find them quicker and the position size is such that it doesn't wound the, the portfolio in any significant way. Um, and the more we argue about those, the faster we find the mistakes. It's not just mistakes and things we own, it's mistakes we're making and not owning. You know, Brent and I were arguing heavily back and forth um, this morning about some stocks that we don't own. And um, we don't need to go into the specifics of that, but it was just like, here's this big argument that the team needs to have about, are we, are we holding a view precious that we should not be holding as precious? And is it time to change our opinions? And if we don't argue, then it's sort of no point um, in, in doing any of it, because you're not gonna root out those mistakes of, of bias unless you're arguing about it. Yeah, are, are there like, good ways to go about arguing? Like, what are some things that when arguing people should stay away from? Well, it's mostly about just losing the ego, which is yeah. hard. And I'm, I'm, really I, hard. I'm not good at it. Um, you know, we all still get our personal identity wrapped up in our ideas, but our personal identity has nothing to do with our ideas at all. And so it's really just the team knowing each other it's obviously really hard to bring somebody into that from the outside you have to be really careful one that they hopefully have the um that sort of ability to say hey this isn't about me this is about the idea and really under make them understand and then you know tamp down any frustrations before they get out of control um or boil over just keep saying like this is about bias your brain is always tricking you okay we you know it's really hard to see when your own brain is telling you a story, but it's a little bit easier for someone else to see that in you. Um, you can you can almost hear like, I think you're getting a little bit defensive about this. So let's try and figure out why that is. You know, it's the same thing if you're arguing with a, um, a significant other or, or a child or anything like that. It's a lot of the same rules, which is like, okay, it's not about me. It's about 
what's the right thing to do here? What's the right action to take? What's the truth? There are some just simple things too, like, you know, trying not to start with you statements. Like, you know, you always, <laughs> you always is a terrible way to start a sentence um, anywhere. Uh, but especially when you're, you know, you are arguing. We also steal some ideas from improv comedy, um, which is, you know, the, the, the first rule in improv is always agree. Um, so uh, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard. Yes, you're right. And it may have some merits too. Yeah. You know, so it's like that's a, a very improv comedy um, rule that we stole, uh, but it sure does make the conversation go a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, the, the yes and rule is important because even when you know, the other person is yes anding you. It's it's like okay, well, there's just still this. They did actually say it. Like they are actually it's agreeing with me trick. a little bit. Yeah, it's a cognitive trick on yourself too to say, well, as you're you're listening to someone talk and you're like, God, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I totally disagree with this, but I'm going to start by saying, okay, I understand what you're saying. Or let me make sure I can figure out how how can I understand what you're saying. Okay, I understand that. Now here's why I think it's wrong. And if you think something's wrong, it's incumbent upon you to be, to forcefully say that, to just say like, no, that's the stupidest thing ever. After you've acknowledged where the person's coming from and why they came to that conclusion. But if you can't figure out where that person came from and how they got there, then you can't really start arguing with them in sort of a good space. It's just not going to work out. Yeah, that's super helpful. That's, I love that taking kind of a, an idea from improv and putting it into investment process. That's awesome. Um, well, hey, don't want to take too much of your time, but what are some daily habits that you guys have that have really kind of contributed to your success? Uh, meditation. <laughs> <laughs> I think meditation is a huge one um, because, you know, when we're going to argue the whole the whole thing is about losing ego. Brad's been really great at this. And I think we've all learned from him in some, in some cases. Um, but just that idea of coming to a place where it's not about me, it's not about being right. It's not about any of that. It, it's just about having these really constructive dialogues where we all learn and we all come to this place of greater understanding about the truth or understanding that we don't know anything about what's going to happen. And both of those are valuable. And, and I, um, meditation is just, uh, or, or taking walks or talking together. Um, those are just incredibly valuable parts of the process. Yeah, we think about also resilience and optionality is applying to everything in life, not just, not just portfolio construction. And so it's having the elements of your daily routine or your weekly or monthly routine that are resilient and sort of pr provide you the sort of core base of stability. And then allowing the optionality to come because you know, we've had great success in investing for a couple of decades, but it's mostly luck. I mean, we get some things right, but what we've done is created a set of circumstances where when luck comes knocking, we hear the knock at the door. And a lot of people are sort of so rigid around their process that the, there's a knock at the door and they open it and are like, you know, they're just like, go away. Or this is not, this is not what, you know, it doesn't fit my sort of view of what, you know, an investment should look like or how the world is changing. And so it's that flexibility and you can start, you can have that in your daily schedule, which is like, you know, you really don't have more than a few hours a day of really productive work. I mean, nobody does. I mean, maybe, um, maybe Elon Musk does, but um, you know, you've really got to basically have this unstructured time, this ability to just, you know, these, these random investing is all about making connections that don't seem obvious. And 
these random connections, like you can't force them. They have to just sort of, they have to sort of spontaneously arrive. Um, you know, it's sort of like the concept of a shower thought or um, when you're most distracted or daydreaming or meditating is when you can sort of make these, these connections. And I think just providing that combination of structure and no structure to allow the good luck to come. And hopefully when the bad luck happens, you just be like, all right, that was bad luck. And, you know, just kind of move on to the next thing. Yeah, super helpful. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, guys. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Great questions. We appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about our process. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.